Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome back to episode 285 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. And as always, I'm super excited that you're joining us today. I just returned from my trip in Portugal, and I wanted to say thank you to those of you who sent me recommendations for restaurants, for the places to see. We stayed there for a week, and we had a blast. Like, they have the best food, the weather was great, and I feel I need a vacation from the vacation. So it was wonderful, and I'm super excited that finally the world is opening up again, and there will be opportunities for traveling. I hope you guys are enjoying your summer as well. Today, we're going to continue our conversation about non-monogamous relationship, but the topic we're going to talk about is something that most people struggle with it at some point in their life. Today, we're going to talk about sexual jealousy. So if you are in a monogamous relationship or non-monogamous relationship, perhaps you experience this emotion at some point in your life. As you know, in the current series, the focus is an open relationship. And one of the reservations that people have when it comes to opening up their relationship is that they're scared of experiencing jealousy. Today, our guest, Kate Lurie, will tell us exactly what we need to do to process this emotion, work through it, and effectively communicate that with our partner. Kate just published her book, which is a wonderful book. We're going to talk about her book. And in the book, she talked about jealousy. So she she's going to tell us how jealousy actually is a catalyst for a deeper intimacy. She teaches teaches us how to identify what we're exactly feeling because in her book she has different many of the options and how you can tackle different options it depends on how you're feeling I love learning about nuances of different emotions and how you need to be mindful of those and how they give us guidance on how to tackle these difficult emotions as I mentioned our guest is Kate Lurie Kate is a sex positive licensed marriage and family therapist with a specialty in non-monogamous kink, LGBTQ, and sex worker communities, and the author of Open Deeply, a guide to building conscious, compassion, open relationships. She also co-hosts her own sex positive podcast, Open Deeply, and she has been featured in so many different publications. She has a private practice in Encino in California. If you want to learn more about her practice, you can check her out at katelurie.com. You can find her full bio in the show notes. Before going into the interview, I am super excited that this month we're partnering with Cozy Earth. They they were our sponsors in the, ba- in the past, and now they they bought another sponsorship package and my husband was so thrilled. We love their bedding. And whenever I have a sponsor, I try a number of their different products because I just want to make sure 
the product is right. And I'm, what I'm talking about is accurate because I just don't want to promote ev- anything. So with Cozy Earth, I'm going to talk about their sheet. They have the best bedding. I'm going to tell you all about my experience at the outro. They have the certified free of harsh chemical and dyed products and all of their products are uh, covered under their 10-year warranty. Their sheets are temperature regulated and if you are interested to purchase their sheet, you can go to the link in our show notes. If you type in sexology, you get 40% off of their products and we also will be super grateful for your support. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with Kate Lurie. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to welcome Kate Lurie to our show. Kate, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I am very excited for our conversation today. I was so lucky that I received a copy of your new book and I love that. I get a lot of different books about consensual non-monogamy and I feel every single time I something I learn something new and we're going to talk about some of the challenges that many of my clients, many of my listeners to struggle with when they are uh, thinking about consensual non-monogamy and opening up their relationship. One thing that was very fascinating for me was your own story of how you got introduced to the community about kind of like being part of kind of fluid community, as you mentioned. Can you tell us that story? Absolutely. So basically, I had initially had an 11 year monogamous relationship. And then when I came out to Los Angeles, I was, you know, kind of fresh off the bus. And in a year, I fell in love with an artist here in LA, and we were living in a little bungalow. And the day non-monogamy was introduced to me at the time, I had three jobs and I was in graduate school. It was pretty, I mean, I loved my life, but it was very intense. And I came home to the bungalow that day that was behind the main house where we lived. And, and when I walked in the door, and this was a day I had worked with a lot of clients and I was tired and I was looking forward to just my cuddle time with the man I loved before I started studying. But when I walked in, he was at the computer and he looked at me with this mischievous grin. And there was a a woman behind him provocatively posed. She was nude. Uh, Her legs were spread and she was, she had a grin on her face and they almost looked complicit. And he said, I have an idea. It's a big one. And I immediately was nervous because I already knew that this was a man that can make things that seemed impossible happen. And I I was just immediately nervous. And he said, I've been talking to a friend of mine, Sadie Allison. She's a sex educator. I was telling her that I'd always cheated in the past. I didn't want to do that to you because I love you so much. And she suggested swinging. Now, when he said that, now I'm from the, even though my family are like progressive Canadians, I was raised in the deep South. And when he said that, and I had just like some images in my head of what non-monogamy was that were completely misguided. So I literally had this image in my head. This was back in 2003, mind you, a long time ago, over, you know, 20, around 20 years ago, I immediately in, in my head pictured this orange van with green shark, uh, shag carpet and like a lascivious man, you know, 
waving me into the van <laughs> and his downtrodden wife behind him. He even had a gold chain, like a thick gold chain with his shirt open, like 1970s style. Like all this just flashed into my head. And then I'm just like, if we do, like, that's crazy talk. And, you know, if we do this, you know, my peers will, my fellow therapists will find out, my mom will find out, like everything will be ruined. That's my initial reaction. So I was the scared one. I was the nervous one, but he was very kind. He's like, Hey, why don't we just explore? We can just go out on some, you know, dates and just have lunch with a few people or dinner and talk to them. We don't have to do anything. Let's just explore and have fun. And that was the beginning of many, many conversations And if I could talk to that younger self, one, I'd like to give her my whole book. But if I were to nutshell it, I'd say, look, I know you're scared right now, but you're about to go on this adventurous ride. It's you're going to grow in so many ways. And yes, you will have some pain, but it's all going to be worth it. What a beautiful and interesting journey. What was the naked woman was doing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the naked woman was actually on one of the many swinger websites. So if you go to a swinger, a swing lifestyle website, everyone has a profile and some people don't even show that don't even show themselves. They keep it very anonymous, but other people are all out there and they might have nudes. And so she was just one of the people on that website that's like, hi, I'm a swinger. You know, which I had never seen a website like that. I didn't even know about the, you know, I'd seen a few things on TV, but I didn't even know that this was a thing. I had no idea that when I went into the grocery, when I went into Trader Joe's, I was walking by poly polyamorous people. I didn't know that when I walked through my gym, I was walking past swing lifestyle people. You know, I had no idea how huge it was. And like I said, I had this very stereotypical kind of bigoted idea of what it was when really out in L.A., very quickly, we were surrounding, we were surrounded sometimes even by celebrities, like very, you know, we were going to parties in these little mini mansions with gorgeous pools and very, you know, fancy, charming, interesting people. And they're all in, all of these people were in the closet because there's a lot of bigotry in our society. So this is a huge amount of our, it's a a lot of people are non-monogamous or they've thought about it, especially younger generations. And so over time, all of these ideas in my head changed. And of course, now I'm a psychotherapist that specializes in this, you know, uh, for I've been a therapist for about 20 years and I've been specializing in this for about a decade. Absolutely. I think in kind of like living and practicing in LA community, I see that it's it's more common than what people assume, but it kind of makes sense that people are not sharing that with like their lifestyle, things we do with people that are in the community that they might not have an accurate depiction of what is to be like to be a non-monogamous relationship, but what it is like to be a parent of a non-monogamous kind of a child, like not the parents who are in a non-monogamous relationship who have children. So it's understandable why people have their own kind of like communities that they show that part of themselves. So you already talked about different, some different types of non-monogamous relationship. We talked about swinging lifestyle and polyamory. So tell us a little bit kind of briefly about different categories of people who identify as non-monogamous. 
Absolutely. So I just want to say briefly, though, that you know how with any community, whether it's, I don't know, the Jewish community or, you know, a group of feminists or whatever it is, they form in communities and then norms are formed, right? So originally there was a swing lifestyle and they had their culture and their norms, especially if, you know, you were a swinger that participated in community and poly people had a lot of norms as well, especially if you participated in community. But now we've got websites like Field, F-E-E-L-D, and that website, it was originally called Thrinder. They actually got, I think, sued. I didn't know that. Because I think they were just mirroring it from Tinder. I think Tinder got cranky. I'm not sure about that. That's the story I make up. But all I know is they had to change that name. And that website doesn't have any norm building functions that like say on this, on most swinger websites, there's chat rooms and there's forums and all of that creates norms. Mm -hmm. So like I can literally almost point out who swinger, you know, I used to be able to just point out who the swinger was at the grocery store, just based on how they were dressed. Oh, interesting. Do tell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me, let me answer your first question and I'd be happy to answer that. So on field, since there's no norms and everything, that's part, that's one of reason of many that everything's breaking down. And so I would say one way to frame it, it's almost like a risk continuum. Let, let, let's say we have a continuum and on the left-hand side, you got your swing lifestyle folks. And I would, so they are usually sexually, sexually non-monogamous and emotionally monogamous. So, and they tend to have more boundaries where they just play with other people, but they're not looking to have love. There's all these boundaries. I always joke that like, if you went to a swinger hotel takeover, it's a little bit going like going to an accountant's convention. Like everybody's going to operate from a similar rule book. That's on the far left. And let's say way on the far right is not just a poly, you know, poly people, but poly people, they're all in a household raising kids together. These are our two extremes on our continuum. And in between those two extremes are every little hybrid in between, like say a couple that does like to play to, together. Maybe they have group sex or they, you know, they share experiences together, but maybe they have outside lovers. So the playing together looks like swing lifestyle. The playing with other lovers looks more poly, you know? And, and so at this point, there's just a bazillion different hybrids in between those two poles. I love that. And it's such an interesting thing that you compare it to accountant uh, convention. And I feel rules can be easier, right? I think like required, I love that in your book, you give people tools and strategies to kind of navigate nuance of human experiences, because no matter how much rule you have, there are going to be things come up that requires conversation and working through that. But that's interesting that you, uh, you introduce that to us. Well, I want to hear about how can I a spot a swinger. <laughs> now, now, keep in mind that I was in the swing lifestyle in the beginning. So maybe 2003 to maybe 2008-ish. So it, I, I was more honed into that back then, you know, because how a swinger will show up to a session with me is going to be different than how they show up to a sure. party. Right? They might roll in in their sweatpants for a therapy session. Whereas when they go to a party back in the day, they would have, and the men would have an affliction t-shirt or, well, not a t-shirt, but well, sometimes it was a t-shirt or a dress shirt. They would have their hair gelled and kind of a, little, a lot more fancy than your average man. 
they usually were gym rats. So the ones that I knew were, were buff and really muscular. Uh, a lot of times the affliction pants and then the shoes at, at that point in time were these boots that were tapered out and a little bit longer than a cowboy boot. They were more stylish and expensive. So that was your kind of uniform for the swinger man. And then <laughs> the swinger woman, a lot of times had a certain amount of plastic surgery. She was usually the ones that I knew were, you know, very on, the, they were on the thin side that they were also gym rats, usually very buff. When a lot of swing, some swinger couples back then, again, the ones that I knew when they went on vacations, they would sometimes go on vacation with other uh, swinger couples and the women would coordinate and they would take pictures in like, say, Lake Havasu and they all have the same bikini or some like theme. And sometimes the men would coordinate a theme as well. And a lot of the parties, the swing lifestyle parties also have themes. So, you know, like on Facebook, when you see some couple, you know, showing up in, in their pictures of Lake Havasu and they're all coordinated with their outfits and stuff, it's like, hmm. <laughs> I wonder. Yeah, you start to kind of like know how the community works and then you can start to point them out. That is so cute. And that's interesting. And like any other community, I'm Iranian American, and I, I know people kind of have certain way of identifying us, <laughs> even for, for people who don't have the accent. But so uh, like good looking tall guys with nice outfit and um, the good hairstyle, they're swingers. <laughs> well, at this point in time, you know, like I said, everything is breaking down, like the swing lifestyle, like all of these communities, it's breaking down and there's more diversity. It used to be way more white people. Now we're finding a lot more diversity in, in terms of race. And in fact, some, some studies actually argue with that, where they say that the reason it seemed so white was that the researchers were getting their data from places that were higher socioeconomic status, like maybe a convention that not everybody can afford to go to. And we're starting to realize, researchers are starting to realize how to capture the data so that you're being more inclusive. But based on the research in the past, it seemed that it was more white. But that now it's true. Kind of questioning all that. Well, that makes sense that kind of like who has resources and historically, at least the clients that I've seen that kind of belong to swinger community would fit that the kind of description that you said, like a higher SES Caucasian couples with more resources. But I hear also that now there's more visibility and more, more diversity within different communities. And I think part of it also is kind of having more awareness around different options of being in different types of relationship because in the past it was kind of the default was monogamy and whether you were monogamous or you're cheating but now there's more awareness I can imagine that people get to choose their options more again it's it's been around for the longest time like all of these non-monogamous relationships but I think awareness can help people to kind of like open the doors for people. What do you think about that? Like you work with this community more than me. So is this that now that more people are hearing about it and it appeals to more people or it's a matter of more visibility? You know, I, I think it depends on what generation you're talking about, especially millennials on down. They're all about breaking down rigidity and any kind of binary 
I have the feeling in the future, you know, with millennial, they're already doing it where they're breaking down the binary of monogamous or non-monogamous. And, you know, it's just like, let's have more fluidity. And, you know, they're, they're breaking down rigidity where they find it. And so with that thinking comes more flexibility. And so they're from that flexibility, they're thinking about all their options. And, you know, and, and when you think about uh, specifically relationship anarchy, which is a category of non-monogamy, they literally have something called a, re- a relationship smorgasbord map. You can Google that, go to images, and you'll see all these maps. And it, it's almost like a menu, like when you go to the, a restaurant and you can choose certain aspects that you would like to bring into your relationship piecemeal, rather than thinking about what society says your relationship should be. So the younger generations are really doing a reboot and not following along with, with, with what they've been told to do related to relationships. In terms of older generations, again, there is more rigidity. Like you see older generations, if I were to just stereotype a little bit, you know, they they do have a tendency to stick more with, okay, you know, I'm going to be a swing lifestyle person or I'm a poly person. They have a tendency to be a little bit more rigid in their thinking, but I think they're very much influenced by, by the younger generations. I don't think they want to admit that. I think they are. And so even their rigidity is, is breaking down. Well, I think it's, it is exciting that people get to choose what works for them. And if certain kind of lifestyle is not suiting you, then why not adjust it? That's because I've seen kind of like with older generation, there's just like people were trying to follow certain kind of lifestyle, certain rules, and it wasn't fitting them. And they were feeling they were defective. Life is like, you know, they're they're not good at relationship versus thinking about, I haven't found a relationship that's right for me. There's mm-hmm. so many things that, that they're exciting about non-monogamous relationship. What I hear, it's often challenging for couples, especially the couples that are opening up their relationship is the jealousy piece. I know you talked about it extensively in the book, but tell us how can we navigate that? Is it something wrong with us if we feel jealous? How can we navigate it? No, there's there's nothing wrong with you if you feel jealous. You know, when you are at your stove and you accidentally touch a burner and and it hurts and then the, the pain allows you to pull your hand away or, or do some sort of action, that pain is not, it's not faulty. It's giving you information so that you can make a decision for yourself. And jealousy, one, it's a complex emotion. So in my therapy practice, the first thing I do is unpack it like a suitcase to find out what's inside. But it's just something that you're, you're experiencing a, a certain amount of pain in some way. And that means that you need to look at it and unpack it. Within the non-monogamous community, a lot of people cope by doing a, kind of a layman's version of cognitive behavioral therapy, and they tend to live in their head and some people, and they, some people regard the body and the emotions as kind of getting in the way at times, you know, I always try and get people to get connected I think of the internal compass as being your mind, body, and emotions working in tandem from a grounded, centered place. From that place, I think that when we track our body, we can navigate jealousy a lot a lot better. So, but let's back up a little bit. When we unpack jealousy, there may be different things inside. And some of those things, you know, we, it, we may experience 
rage, fear, fear of abandonment. And there might be some things that get confused with jealousy. Like for instance, I've heard so many people say, oh, why can't I do non-monogamy right? I'm so jealous. And they'll give me a whole bunch of examples of what's going on. And I've been working with them long enough to know what their relationship agreements are. And they're giving me a whole bunch of examples of their partner breaking relationship agreements. And I'm like, you don't sound like you're jealous. You, it sounds like you feel disrespected, which is entirely different than jealousy, right? Or sometimes people feel envy, which is more like, I wish I could have something that you have. Whereas jealousy tends to be more linked to a fear of losing something. Like if my partner is dating someone else, what if they run off with that person? That fear of loss is a primary piece of what jealousy is amongst other emotions. So that's the first thing is unpack it, see what's inside. Once you unpack it, that can help you out. But to me, it's helpful to think of a specific example. Do I have time to give an example? Yes, yes. I I love it. Please carry on. I have so many examples in my head. I want to hear your example. (laughs) Okay, okay. so this is a non-monogamous example. So uh, imagine that Bob and Sarah go to a play party. And they're just milling around being social, you know, they're not, they're not playing or anything, but it is Sarah's birthday party that night. And when they go to this party, Kimmy is there and Bob proceeds to flirt with Kimmy all night long. And he doesn't pay that much attention to Sarah, even though Sarah's his primary and even though it's her birthday, right? And so, and she doesn't say anything because she doesn't want to be drama at the party, which is kind of a a norm within especially the swing lifestyle, you know? And and so when they leave and they're driving home, there's this huge, huge fight, right? But later on, maybe the next day, Kimmy looks at the situation and she thinks about what is my responsibility in it and what is my, is his responsibility in it? His responsibility in it is, is pretty clear, right? It's her birthday. He could have like, even if they were polyamorous and actually Kimmy was his other partner and he loved both of them equally. And that was part of the relationship agreement. It's her freaking birthday. He could have been more balanced, right? He could have been more concer- uh, considerate of her. That's his piece. On her part, she might get one way to get in touch with what's getting triggered in a moment like that is to think about the worst moment, watching him flirt with Kimmy, get in touch with what's going on in your body. I'm feeling tight in my body. I'm feeling hot in my face. I'm feeling anger. I'm feeling sadness. I'm feeling left. Get in touch with that. And then bridge back to the first or worst memory that feels emotionally similar. And and Sarah bridges back to a memory of being at a gas station. She had a sibling that was super funny and her parents she always felt like her parents loved her sibling better. And they're always laughing at her jokes. They're at the gas station. They were laughing at her siblings jokes so much. They drove off without her leaving her at the gas tank and, or gas station, watching them drive away laughing. Mm-hmm. And she realized in that moment that that whole experience at the play party got turned up from maybe it's already an upsetting situation. Maybe it would have been at an eight, but now it feels like a 10 plus from zero to 10 because she had that whole history with her sister where she felt neglected. So once she figures out her piece in that, then she can work with that. That may be telling Bob why that it was already upsetting, but this is why it got cranked up to a 10, like letting him have that awareness. And it's his job to be compassionate 
she may decide she needs to do some therapy on that, you know, and, and get those triggers reduced so that her non-monogamous journey will be easier. Because guess what? If she has that dynamic with her sibling and that gets triggered a lot, that will get triggered again within non-monogamy just because there's other partners involved that in this case are female. So this is a few things, but it it is a a journey of figuring out what your partner's responsibility is, what yours is, and then figuring out how to move forward from that. And that sounds common sense, but within non-monogamy, people have a tendency to, especially women, they have a tendency to want to be a pleaser because our culture tells women to do that, right? That women... Sometimes it's men, but someone who's an overgiver, maybe because of cultural conditioning or what have you, sometimes they say yes when it's not a true yes. Sometimes they suppress their needs when they should say what they need, you know? And so understanding these, this kind of a pattern, this kind of a way of approaching it can help someone not be an overgiver. And it can also help someone with narcissist, a little bit of narcissistic tendencies, but not a full-blown diagnosable narcissist to be able to look at this new way and go, oh, I need to do more than just get pissed off at my partner. I need to think about my responsibility in this as well. And it sounds like it requires so much maturity from all parties involved to do the work. One thing I I love in the book that you were talking about, is this jealousy or is this envy or is this suspectful? All of those menu of options. Because sometimes when I ask people in the session, how did that feel? They say bad. (laughs) They don't even say jealousy. Like it's just like a umbrella of emotion that's really important as you mentioned to unpack exactly what it is so we can kind of go to the kind of like how it feels in our body and then kind of like where it might be connected to and I know for for many of my clients they rather say I was disrespected than saying I was jealous because disrespected is something that it feels less vulnerable than jealousy because jealousy it feels like you know i'm scared of losing you well disrespect is something that's a little bit more distance right yeah that's one thing and then also at least within non-monogamy in some cases when somebody admits that they're jealous or let me flip it around a lot of times when somebody admits vulnerability sometimes the other partner will catastrophize and start saying i don't even know why we're trying to be non-monogamous you can't do this you're just phony you're just doing this for me and and you're so jealous and the, and just that word will just shut the person down now the person saying that uh the vulnerable person is jealous maybe they're not trying to be manipulative maybe they're just having an emotional outburst but that's oftentimes the effect that all you have to do is say the j word you'll just watch somebody collapse into silence you know it, it literally is almost like a j word with some people in private practice when you see people talking about it on the internet they're openly talking about it. It, you know, and, and all that. But in my practice, it, it is a really good way to shut people down. And then I have to make sure the conversation keeps going. And I have to point out just what, what just happened and, and let the person be aware that they may feel like they're winning the argument because your, their, their uh, partner is silent. But they're not they're not winning the long game because when that person falls silent, they're not thinking, oh, you you won. You're right. They're they're slipping into hopelessness and helplessness. And that's never a good thing. I agree with you. And I feel it's just uh, can be confusing to be at the receiving end of it. 
like if the situation is a little bit more ambiguous and then you're coming home with your partner knowing that you had this agreement that she's going to be okay or he's going to or they're going to be okay and then now you're receiving this hurricane of emotions that feels very raw what would be a constructive way of meeting our partner's jealousy? Well, one thing, so what you're describing is someone that is in a hurricane of emotions, right? So that may be jealousy. It might be that hurricane of emotions can be many things. But one of the first things to do when you see your partner is basically dysregulated in their body is to ground them because, so I'm also a trauma therapist. And to me, it's, it's kind of crazy pants that couples therapy and trauma therapy run parallel a lot of times and they don't have the Venn diagram crossover that they should. And this is the moment where it should very much cross over. When that person is that upset, they're dysregulated in their body. There's changes in the brain that happen. The prefrontal cortex that negotiates between reason and emotion is not working so well. So the first thing you need to do is make sure both of you are grounded. And that, again, that takes stopping and realizing that, right? And so that might mean, so ideally you want to get in front of it before the person is in a rage, right? And you want to have a conversation when you're calm or with your therapist where you say, okay, if you start to get upset in any kind of way, how can I ground you? What would you like? And not assume. A lot of times people go, oh, honey, you're upset. Let me, let me hug you. And then the other person is like, don't touch me, right? So a lot of this, you need to either ask beforehand or ask in the moment. I can, you know, can we do some deep breathing together? Like, can I hold your hand? Can I pet your hair? Like, what can I do to help ground you? Once the person is calmer, now we can start to have a constructive conversation and weave in things like the Imago dialogue, you know, like mirroring the person's emotions, validating what they are expressing. So like what I'm just describing right now is my epic communication model. So E is emotional, P is the physical, the grounding, I is the intellectual, the validating, and then C is compassion and action. A lot of people want to problem solve at the beginning. You never want to do that. You want to problem solve at the end. So a lot of it is validating and empathizing. That will calm someone's system down. That does not mean that you have to agree with them. Again, my book talks about this at length, about how to ground the body and how to use a communication model that can calm someone down who is upset with the non-monogamy. And at the risk of being long-winded, I'm just going to say one quick thing is that the thing is we all have attachment injuries and non-monogamy pokes on pokes at our unresolved attachment injuries way more than monogamy, you know? And so when we get upset like that, we're not just getting upset in the moment. A lot of times we're our past unresolved attachment injuries are getting triggered. And so that's why it's so much, so much more important to understand some of the trauma therapy stuff, which is like practicing mindfulness, meditating, grounding the body, knowing how to ground your partner, knowing how to ground yourself. Well, I love that you brought the compassion piece to this conversation, because I feel like that's something that's missing that many of these conversations that couples having what would that look like? Okay. So if I were to give an example, I'm going to give an example that houses my communication model. Okay. So let's say Veronica says to Jim, I'm so angry at you last night at, at, at our play party, you were making out with Sally and you broke my garden gnome that my great grandmother gave me. It was the only gift that I had from her. You haven't apologized. It's been 24 hours. I'm so upset with you. Right. 
And let's say he knows the epic model. So the first thing he does is, honey, I can tell you're upset. Can I sit down? I know that it helps if I hold your hand or if I pet your hair. And she says, actually, can we go to the bedroom? And can you just be the big spoon and let me talk to you while I'm the little spoon? Okay. So now they're in the bed. He's spooning her while she's kind of angry and sad. And he starts with the emotion. So now we've done the P runs all the way through it, right? Now we're going to the E in epic, the emotional piece. He's like, he starts reflecting back. I hear that you are feeling sad, angry, blah, blah, blah. He pulls out all the emotional language, right? And then if he sees that she's upset again, he might check in with how he can ground her. That's the P. Moving to the I, you know, is the intellectual validating part. I intellectually understand why you're upset because you loved your great grandmother so much. And that's the last thing you had. Moving to the, your question, conscious compassion, compassion in action. At that point, he might say, is there anything I can do to make this better? And she says, oh, yeah, you can you can get it fixed. I, I saw in Yelp, there's a person that can fix this. If you can get that fixed, I will feel better about this, right? It's so important to do the compassion at the very end because otherwise people feel like you are not seeing them, not hearing them and skipping over everything and not truly compassionate. But if you put it at the end in some actionable way, then people feel heard, seen and cared about. Such a great model. And I, at times, and I'm sure you see that a lot, that people, they get what their partner is saying, but they're just so scared of mirroring because they assume that mirroring back, saying what they hear means that they're agreeing. And sometimes they just don't want to agree. And that's like that leads to this vicious cycle of the partner repeating themselves and then like the person get defensive. But it is it is very good to have a model. I'm thinking about, did I cover all of this. I'm sure long term it comes more organic for people, but it's kind of think about what element of it it's missing. And and many of my clients, they go right to fixing. Like as you mentioned, that like where can I go? Go, okay, I'll get it fixed. I'll buy another one. But then they are missing the component of this was something very valuable and meaningful. And I feel kind of in a way disappointed that you didn't acknowledge that, didn't say anything. So I think it's such a great model. And I love your book because it had lots of good actionable tips and information for couples that are going on this journey of opening up the relationship or perhaps want to kind of like strengthen the relationship they have, the open relationship that they have. So but if people want to learn more about your book, where to get it, what are some of the places they can find it? Okay. Well, the book is called Open Deeply, a guide to conscious, compassionate, open relationships. It's you can find it wherever books are sold. If you're somebody who likes to read an actual physical paperback, please support your local bookstore. Like if you're in LA, you know, you can buy from Skylight Books or The Last Bookstore or Book Soup, but it is available in three forms. So you can get it in paperback, Kindle or audiobook. And yeah, it's sold wherever books are sold. So you can get it on Amazon if you want it quick, you know, what have you. Let's see. Was that the main question or? Yes. And we would love to hear where can I'm connected with you in social media, but where can our listeners get a hold of you? Do you have social media accounts? Yeah. So, you know, my website is katelaree.com, L-O-R-E-E. You can find me on Instagram or TikTok at Open Deeply with Kate Lurie. And I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. I'm spacing on my actual name, but if you put in Kate Lurie, you will find me on any social media. It'll, it'll pop right up because my name is not super common. So 
Yeah, I'm everywhere and uh, I'm going to be, you know, doing a lot more. I'll be out and about promoting my book. So I'll be easy to find. Beautiful. We'll leave the link in the show notes to that where they can people get a book. Thank you so much for being generous with your time and uh, sharing these wonderful actionable tools and things that we can use in our relationships. And it was so lovely, lovely to have you in our show. Thank you so much for having me and you have a wonderful podcast and you're doing great work and I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. I hope you guys found our conversation meaningful. It was very empowering to learn how you can effectively tackle this emotion, identify what you're feeling and communicating with your partner. Because when we have overwhelming emotion, one tendency that people have is to put it away, press it down, hoping that it's going to get disappear because no one want to be that jealous partner. And the more we don't address these things, they will show up in a random places in our relationship. So my invitation is for you to try the technique that Kate shared with us. Write to me and let me know what you think about that. You can DM me at our Instagram account, which is at sexology podcast. At the end, I want to thank again our sponsor, Cozy Earth. As I mentioned, we are obsessed with their sheets. They are truly the softest sheets I've ever owned in my entire life. I'm not a stranger to luxury sheets because I think the quality of the bedding is really important. I personally struggle with sleep issues most of my life. So whatever help I can get as far as helping me to with sleep, I will invest in it. But although the Cozy Earth products are more within an affordable range, they have been the best sheets for us. What I like about it, that they have a cooling and temperature regulation. So, you know, if you're sleeping with someone in the bed, you're sharing the bed with them, things can get very hot. So if you are sensitive to heat, this can be a great investment for you. At times, I even take it with me to hotels we're going because a you know during COVID things were kind of scary to use the hotel's bedding and also it just gives me the best sleep when I sleep in these sheets all right so if you are also curious about checking out their bedding you can use our code sexology to get 40% off thank you so much for staying with us to all the way to the end and I cannot wait until next week same time same place bye for now thanks for listening to sexology podcast for more great content visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.